Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Here at my table, it is long and strange, and the temperature of this place is not fitting to your fine sensations. Come to the hut upon the mountain. The sun is yet high in the heavens before it descends to hide itself beyond yon snowy precipices and illuminate another world. You will have heard my story and can decide. On you it rests whether I quit forever the neighborhood of man and lead a harmless life or become the scourge of your fellow creatures and the author of your own speedy ruin. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. And as you might have guessed from the title or from Robert's reading just now, we are talking about Frankenstein. Yes. It is the month of October. It is our favorite time of year. And Frankenstein is 200 years old this year. So we felt like we had to do an episode on Frankenstein. Yeah, it's such a great topic because it's it brings everything together. Like Frankenstein, of course, is just is a horror standout, just a horror icon. Yeah. Um, the, the novel itself is is a classic. And, and more importantly, I guess, for a science show is Frankenstein continues to cast this shadow over the sciences. It emerges from right. science and and it continues to color our understanding and at times fear of science. It is uh, it, it is essentially science fiction. Uh, yeah. And people often, you know, you forget about that when you just get caught up sometimes in just the, the sheer monster uh, aspects of the thing. Yeah, I even read one account that described it as the first science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but certainly we think of it as horror, probably more because of the movies. But the book itself is a little bit of both. And it's not the book itself, which we're going to mainly focus on the book today. Of course, we'll talk about the other pop culture resonance of this book throughout history. But uh, the book is not gory. It's, uh, you know, the scenes where the monster kills people are pretty much just like, then he snapped her neck. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like uh, it's it's not. It's not Boris Karloff even, right? Yeah, it's it's really a, t- a tremendous book that I th- I think stands the test of time rather nicely. Uh, I think it, it communicates well to modern viewers. It's 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 a complex book. Yeah. The the monster, uh, the creature is not just it's not it's not just a you know a, a shambling uh, killer. He's a complex creature. Uh, likewise, Victor Frankenstein is neither hero nor pure villain in this. There are there are shades of gray in him as well. So it's right. a it's a story ultimately of two complex individuals of a creator and the created and all the various. Um, <laughs> interpretations of that that flow both religiously, scientifically, and purely cultural. Yeah, there certainly are a lot, and that's not really our mission here on this show. Um, I'm sure there are lots of other podcasts that are doing great uh, literary readings of Frankenstein mm-hmm. and sort of tearing apart its themes. We'll talk about those, but we're here mainly to look at the science behind it. Uh, we will briefly talk, though, as we usually do, about you know the the cultural importance of this media artifact, basically. Uh, and I think it would be great for us to start off by saying, what, what's your favorite, what's your favorite Frankenstein? 
Yeah, I mean, we all have our favorites, and these favorites are not always going to be colored by our, you know, uh, our appreciation for the text. You know, it's just growing up with the monster. Yours um, is the Aaron Eckhart from I Frankenstein, isn't it? <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. I, I kind of want to. It looks I, like I it saw it. Be it's real bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, for, I have to start by saying I've never seen an adaptation where I felt like the monster, the the creature. You know, captured the the essence of the creature from the novel. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm being perhaps a little unfair there, but but yeah, there's a there's this sort of idea of what the monster could be, and I've yet to see that really come to fruition on film. I do have to say though, um, I, I have very strong memories of seeing what was probably for many a rather lackluster Frankenstein. I okay. I don't know if I may be alone in this being like an iconic Frankenstein for me, but uh, there was a 1992 TV movie, and I believe it aired on TNT, uh, titled Frankenstein, and it uh, starred Patrick Bergen as Doctor Frankenstein and Randy Quaid <laughs> as uh, as the creation, and it. Uh, <laughs> It was it was quite. I remember it as being good. I don't know if yeah. it would hold up. To I've a, never heard of this. Viewing. Randy Quaid, and it was a serious movie. It wasn't oh, yeah. like a comedic Frankenstein. It was a serious period piece. Wow. And, and Quaid gave really a great, serious performance as the monster that was, you know, on on par with what's in the book. You know, yeah. maybe not not perfect, but still in keeping with the novel. Okay. And uh, and Patrick Bergen is always great. Uh, it, it featured, you know, all the Arctic intrigue that mm. that I always loved in, in the book that is absent from some of the, the film adaptations, yeah. many of the film adaptations, really. Uh, it also has some wonderful scenes in which the monster and later his doomed bride are created out of like a lead, red liquid. So there's kind of like a pr- primordial soup that he brews up in a tank. Oh, OK. And it was directed by uh, David Wicks, who also did a Jekyll and Hyde TV movie from 1990. It starred Michael Caine, Cheryl Ladd, and Joss Auckland. And I remember seeing that one in, on TV and finding it rather terrifying as well. Wow. Well, this was a period of time where I didn't live in the United States. So mm-hmm. I, I must have, it must have been off my cultural radar because I didn't have American television then. But I had never heard of either of these. Wow. Yeah. I was like nursed on uh, American television at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no avoiding it for me. Uh, but I, yeah, I remember that's. That's a film adaptation that I think back to a lot, even though I haven't seen it since I've seen it on TV in like 1990. I should really give it another viewing. Yeah. Well, for my part, uh, I have two that I really love. The first is uh, Bernie Wrightson, who a lot of people out there know as uh, just a famous illustrator, mm-hmm. especially in the horror genre. He, in the late 70s, early 80s, had this passion project where he wanted to do an illustrated version of Frankenstein. And... Uh, he did. It took him years to finish it, but, uh, Marvel Comics published it, uh, I think in the early 80s. Since gone out of print. But, uh, earlier this year, I was at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, and I found an oversized, uh, edition of this Frankenstein copy. In fact, it's right in front of me right now. Oh, yes. Uh, and man, the illustrations in it are gorgeous. I think Wrightson is like one of the few people who captures the monster's essence, uh, at least according to the book. Um, and this is just a really beautiful copy. So I always think of when I think of the monster and when I think of Victor Frankenstein, I think of these drawings, but I have to say there's a totally whacked out version of Frankenstein that I also love from the comics that, uh, a guy we often talk about on the show, Grant Morrison did very, very short four issue series, Frankenstein agent of shade. And, uh, (laughs) Frankenstein 
is basically a monster hunter. The monster, not Victor Frankenstein. He's a monster hunter and, uh, he goes like all over the world and even to Mars to hunt monsters. Uh, and it's just this absolutely insane, uh, psychedelic Frankenstein ride. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and, uh, so yeah, he's like part of like a, a group called Shade that's basically like, uh, like, the government version of like a paranormal control team or something huh. like that. So they send him in. Uh, the bride is in it too. And she's also an agent and they've like sewn extra arms on her. So <laughs> she's like, she's got uh, a bunch of guns and weapons and stuff like that, that she, you know, she's adept at fighting with like, I think six or seven limbs or something like that. Well, this, this sounds about right for, for Grant Morrison. You have a, a Gothic, um, horror creature that yeah. is also kind of a Hindu goddess that's yeah. involved in some sort of a paranormal psychedelic. Oh yeah. He very much plays up the Hindu goddess part. She even has like a jewel, I think on her forehead. And oh, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. I should check that out. Um, and then of course, just from growing up, the ones that, well, not growing up, the ones that I love too are Tom Noonan and monster squad. Oh yeah. He was my Frankenstein. Cause he was just like, the nicest Frankenstein who helped out the kids at the end of that movie. Yeah, he was a good guy, Frankenstein. <laughs> he was, yeah. That. Uh, the monster. And, uh, lately, uh, Penny Dreadful, Rory Kinnear's performance in that as the monster is, wow, really great. And, uh. It's essentially Robert Smith. Yes. As, as the monster. It is right? very much, yeah. I can't remember the name of the guy, uh, who plays Victor Frankenstein, but he's incredible as well. The whole Frankenstein arc in Penny Dreadful is, is amazing. Very well done. Um, I, I have to say too that I have a lot of love for the Hammer Horror films and their oh, various yeah. interpretations of, of Frankenstein and the creature. It's uh, Christopher Lee, right? Um, it, 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 it depends on who's involved. Uh, oh, okay. You know, it's kind of a, a, a a, uh, a revolving cast at times, though uh, Peter uh, Peter Cushing played Victor or Doctor Frankenstein or whatever or Baron Frankenstein, whatever twist they were doing on it, yeah. in a number of them. So he's kind of like the iconic Frankenstein, the man. Okay, uh, the monster varied, but from a purely design level, I really love uh, David uh, Prowl's uh, monster from Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell from '74. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've seen this one where. The monster looks like a gorilla with, uh, like the top of its head sewn back on. Classic hammer horror, uh, special effects. Yeah. 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 So it, it uh, looks, looks tremendous. I, yeah. We're really, you know, uh, um, here in the States, I really wish that there was like easier access to all of those hammer things. You can find a lot of them on YouTube nowadays, but like, man, it would be great if you could just like, stream all of those on like one service or, oh, or yeah. get them at your local video shop or something like that. They're well, really yeah, hard. If you have a great v- local video shop, like, like we do video drone. Yeah. You can, but, uh, That's but yeah, it's true. harder with these streaming services. Yeah. Yeah. They're not as readily available, although hammer's making a comeback right now. So okay. maybe they'll, uh, I don't know, put their archives up so everybody can watch these crazy Frankenstein movies again. You know, I should go ahead and we should go ahead and make one point before we move on into the, the meat of the episode. And that is, of course, there's always the whole, uh, there's Frankenstein, the man. Yeah. There's the creature, the monster. And some people get really uh, upset if you refer to the monster as Frankenstein. Yeah. And yes, technically that is so. Uh, the, the creature is not named Frankenstein. But at this point in the tradition of the character, it's 
it, 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 it's almost interchangeable. It is, yeah. Uh, in fact, almost every article I read for researching this episode had that disclaimer in it. And I believe it was S.T. Joshi, who we've uh, talked about on the show before. You've interviewed him on the show before. Mm-hmm. He's a famous horror, uh, what would you say, literary critic? Yeah. Uh, he was basically like, look, at this point, like, the, it's not even worth arguing about. Like, it's just become a cultural norm <laughs> that people refer to the monster as Frankenstein. Just let it go. Let's all move on. Yeah. So we're probably going to do a little bit of both and just bear yeah. with us. Forgive us. Uh, personally, I love it when someone refers to p- plural Frankenstein's monsters <laughs> by f- calling them Frankenstein's. Like 27 Frankenstein's yeah. <laughs> took the field and defeated, I don't know, the New England Patriots. <laughs> That would be a great, I would actually watch sports if that was, if that was available. <laughs> With Victor as the coach. Yeah. Uh, Greenland. Yeah. yeah. Make that movie. You, you heard it here first. All right. Well, on, on that note, let's, let's move, let's move ahead. And in doing so, let us move back in time and talk about the origins of Mary Shelley's, um, classic novel. Yeah. So like I said, this isn't a literary podcast, but I, I do think it's important that we establish some uh, a bit of a setting here for how this book was created for what we're going to talk about science wise later on, because some of this is important and uh, the listeners may not be aware of this. Some of it I wasn't aware of until I uh, dove in yesterday. So uh, it's the 200 year anniversary. We've been talking about this. Why is that important? Well, 1816 was referred to as the year without a summer. Most people know the story that Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, and John Polidori were in Switzerland vacationing, and they had a competition with one another to see who could write the best horror story. And Mary came out with Frankenstein. What a lot of people don't know is that this was during an unexpectedly cold summer in Switzerland. So that's why they were enclosed indoors the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why was it was a year after an eruption at Mount Tambora. And that had affected the climate somehow and made it much colder, I guess, because the ash was still in the yeah, air. Yeah, yeah. Like if anyone anyone out there is familiar with uh, nuclear winter and theories regarding that, it's the same thing. You have, uh, yeah. stu- you have material that's ejected into the upper atmosphere and it serves as kind of a shade that chills the world. So they were stuck indoors trying to amuse themselves and they came up with this contest and Mary started working on Frankenstein. Um, for their parts, Byron uh, wrote sort of like a, a summary and I guess Polidori then like took it further and, and wrote it into a story called The Vampire, which is another horror classic and it later influenced Bram Stoker's Dracula. So this, you know, um, year without a summer is like highly influential on the genre of horror as we know it. But uh here's another thing I didn't know. I'm curious if you've heard of this before. I learned about it from a comic book, a graphic novel by Warren Ellis and an artist named Merrick Olicsicki called Frankenstein's Womb. And apparently there's two theories of real-life events that also contributed to the book. The first is that before they uh, went to Switzerland for this infamous vacation, Mary and Percy visited the real Frankenstein castle that's near Dromstadt, Germany, in 1814. And the story about that place goes that Conrad Dippel was there, and he had experimented with human bodies there in his pursuit of alchemy. So it's possible that Mary heard about all of this before uh, they even went and had their horror story competition mm-hmm. and that she 
based Victor Frankenstein on Conrad Dippel. He claimed to have invented an elixir of life, and he was rumored to have experimented on dead bodies. So there's lots of similarities. But this is like one of those things that's sort of lost to history. Nobody really knows. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's certainly a uh, alchemical DNA in Frankenstein. As yeah. Discussed, so, yeah. You know, it's, it seems likely. The second theory that comes out of this Frankenstein's womb book, and, and it has been expressed in other places, obviously. It's not like Warren Ellis cooked it up. Uh, is that thematically, Frankenstein is about a premature birth that Mary had in 1815, where their baby died two weeks after it was born. So this is, uh, again, like there, and I'll get into this, like this woman had a horrible life full of medical mis- misfortune. And honestly, it really seems like Percy Shelley treated her like garbage. But it said that he didn't even care about the baby's condition after it was born and went on to have an affair with her stepsister right after oh. it was born. Uh, and that Frankenstein, the writing of it, is her reconciliation with giving life and then that life dying, the death of her baby, and the horrible father that she had to put up with. Huh. So, um, and just, all right, here's a little uh, side note about Percy Shelley. He sounds like an awful person all the way around. Like, everything I've read about him, he just doesn't sound like a pleasant guy. Um, not only was he this obnoxious adulterer, but according to Polidori's diary from that summer, this is just one little instance of him. They were all sitting around telling stories or something, and Shelley just stood up and grabbed his head and started shrieking and ran out of the room, like very Ugh. pretentiously. And everybody was like, what is this all about? And he runs into the bathroom, he throws water into his face, and he comes back and he goes, well, I'm sorry. It's just while you were talking just then, I, I suddenly imagined a woman who had eyes instead of nipples. And everybody was just like, oh, okay, moving on. Huh. Uh, so he seems like a real character. Um, and I imagine for, for Mary's part, you know, she, I think they got together at like super early age. Like she was like 16 or something like that. And mm-hmm. they, they were married maybe when she was 19 or 20, but like she had already given birth to this, uh, premature child. Lot, a lot of weird stuff around this. And, uh, well, well, I guess on that theories like that, I, I, I can certainly see where it could be a part of the genesis of the story because certainly misfortune and life events in general tend to color our creative endeavors. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I guess I, t- I tend to shy away from theories that say, oh, this book right here is all about this one thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just don't think life necessarily works like that. Well, and Frankenstein is one of those books, right, that like, I'm trying to remember if I read it in high school. I definitely read it in college because I took horror classes in college. But like, mm-hmm. um, it's one of those books sort of like Catcher in the Rye, where you can, like, you as the reader bring your themes to it. And lots of people try to apply those and say, like, this, this is what this is about, right? Uh, And Frankenstein's one of those. I mean, it, it, it's very universal Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, So a lot of people take different things from it. So, yeah, you're right. There isn't, those are just two sort of little maybe factoids about uh, its genesis. Another thing I read was an article called The Medicine of Shelley and Frankenstein out of a journal called Emergency Medicine. And this sort of traced the uh, medical misfortunes, as I mentioned earlier, of Mary Shelley and how they may have influenced it, uh, that she was very much aware of science, medicine, and the ideas of life and death because of all of these things. So I'm going to hit you with them real quick. So uh, Mary Shelley's mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a prominent feminist at the time. But she actually died 10 days after giving birth to Mary from puerperal fever, which was a pretty common occurrence at the time, I think. Uh, 
There's also mention of the birth of their daughter, who I, I talked about earlier, Clara. That's the one who died at 12 days of age. Reportedly, Mary had dreams of this dead daughter being reanimated by fire right afterwards. So you can imagine how like traumatized this woman was. Like she grew up without a mother. Her mm-hmm. first kid dies. She's, uh, I guess, like eloped with this kind of jerk. Uh, in 1816, just after Mary gave birth to their second child, William, her sister, Fanny, committed suicide with laudanum. Then in 1817, Percy had another wife, and her name was Harriet, and she committed suicide while she was pregnant with his child. Two weeks later, two weeks after this woman commits suicide, Percy marries Mary. And then they have a third child, and that's Clara Everina Shelley. And she died at 13 months of age from dysentery. Then William, who was the one who was born earlier, he dies in 1819 from malaria. So she's already, she's had three kids who've died. Her sister, uh, her, what do you call her? Other wife? <laughs> and then her mother. They've all, like every, everybody around her has just died. Uh, and then Percy himself is lost at sea in 1822. Mary contracts smallpox in 1828, and she lives until the ripe old age of 52 uh, when she died from a brain tumor. So I guess you could say her short life was full of life, death, and the the whims of brilliant but unstable men. Uh, exactly, in the form of her husband. which makes sense regarding the book, and and just that like. She would have been aware of a lot of the medical scientific goings on of the time, uh, not just because of this, but also because uh, her father and uh, Percy and Byron, they were all sort of interested in this stuff and talked about it and met with scientists of the time, as we'll talk about later. So at the, at the heart of Frankenstein, of course, we have the tale of a of a human creating life, particularly a, a human male creating life using science to do so. Uh, and, and, and in that, like the, the mythic roots of this thing run pretty deep. And, and if you follow the, the mythic roots far enough, you also reach like the basic, uh, psychological underpinnings of this, this whole notion of, of humans giving life to an unliving object. Um, so I'm just gonna, gonna, gonna coast through some of this, uh, here for you. So, uh, so we have numerous examples of this to, to draw on in myth, of course. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, for instance, the Greek myth of Pygmalion, uh, in which, uh, you know, a female scul- sculpture is, is awoken with the help of the god Venus. Uh, and med- medieval Jewish folk tales are full, full of golems, uh, artificial beings that are, you know, brought to life via a tablet of sacred words that are inserted beneath the, the clay humanoid's tongues. Um, Countless other examples exist. Yeah. Now, but humans have a knack for attributing life to artificial likenesses. And it's, you know, we call this, uh, anthropomorphism. And it refers to when we take non-human or impersonal objects and we give them human or personal characteristics or behaviors. Yeah. And so this is a good spot for us to note something about Shelley's version of the monster. Uh, that, the, this Frankenstein's monster was not sewn together and blasted to life with lightning, mm-hmm. as we've come to understand from James Whale's 1931 film. Uh, in fact, the machines that are in that were actually inspired by Nikola Tesla's high-voltage devices. In the book, however, the monster is more like a golem or a homunculus in that it's brought about by what is called, quote, an elemental principle of life, like alchemy, 
that is then applied to various, quote, raw materials from the dissecting room in the slaughterhouse. So, yes, it's undead meat, I guess, Mm -hmm. but it's not even necessarily human parts. It's more like a flesh golem. Yeah, and while there is, you know, an allusion to some sort of electrical nature to the secret, it's very much a secret in the book because the book is is uh, is told from the the point of views of Victor and the creature. Yeah. And Victor, as a a first person uh, uh, narrator here, does not want to share his secret. Like most of the book is about how ashamed and awful he feels about having brought this thing into being, and therefore he wants to die with the secret. Yeah. So he why does not would share he tell anyone? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, remember the narrative setup is that they're in the Arctic. Uh, he's on a ship with a, the ship's captain, I think, or, uh-huh. or, or somebody who's on the ship, and just basically telling, recounting the story yeah. to him, and is full of woe at all the tragedy that it has wrought him. Yeah, as he and his created chase each other to the ends of the earth. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, we have this basic idea that just that, that we have the power to think things to life. Yeah. Not in a, a literal sense, but in a you know in a in a, in a meta- metaphoric and psychological sense. Uh, a, a brick is just a brick. Until we paint a smiley face on it. Right. Uh, and then it becomes inevitably a little harder or a little easier to throw that brick down a well because you've imbued it with a sense of being. And this interesting quirk stems from something anthropologists call the law of similarity, which holds that humans inevitably link superficial real life resemblances to deep unreal resemblances. So a baby doll isn't an actual infant, but it resembles one enough to make it real to the child who plays with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a way to test the law of similarity on your own. You can sketch a face of a loved one on a scrap of paper and then crumple it in your hand. And when you do that, do you feel a connection? Do you feel that connection that your mind forms between the resemblance and the thing itself? Probably so. Uh, so out of this uh, f- phenomenon, we have innumerable magical and religious practices that emerge in human uh, culture, such as harming a person's likeness to produce the same effect on the actual person, uh, so-called sympathetic magic that includes the burning of effigies, the use of voodoo dolls, etc. Right, right. And the roots of uh, anthropomorphic thinking lie in the human capacity for reflective consciousness, the ability to use what we know about ourselves to understand and predict, predict the behaviors of others. And these uh, em- empathetic qualities gave early humans an evolutionary advantage, allowing them to not only outthink other people, but also to fit the behaviors of domesticated animals within the confines of human society. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah. yeah. So and then as a as kind of a sidebar to that, it also gives us the the, the place in human cognition to, to dream about bringing man-made likenesses to life, be it a, a statue of a woman or a flesh golem in a gothic basement. Which brings us to alchemy. Yes. Um, and I want to read a passage here from the book, actually, before we dive into this. There is Mary Shelley was obviously well aware of alchemy at the time, uh, and she works it into the book. There's a point where Victor's studying at the university, mm-hmm. and he's got some, um, I guess, mentors, and one of them is referred to. They don't, they don't give his first name. He's just M. Waldman, uh, but Waldman sort of, you know, guides Victor's study and says, "You can use my machine." So he's it's implied Waldman sort of knows how to do this himself, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says this about alchemists. He says, the ancient teachers of this science promised impossibilities and performed nothing. The modern masters promise very little. They know that metals cannot be transmuted and that the elixir of life is a chimera. But 
These philosophers, whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt and their eyes to pore over the microscope or crucible, have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. So there's a little bit of a setup here that Shelley's giving us, which is, yes, alchemy was a thing, and we acknowledge that Victor Frankenstein is pretty influenced by it, but modern science is here to pave the real way that alchemy left behind. Yeah, and, and that I think that gets to the heart of, of what alchemy was. Uh, you know, basically, from the 16th to the 18th centuries, it was a, a hodgepodge of early chemistry, occultism, essentially you know, all these these uh, these these graspings for understanding. Some rooted in in pre scientific chemistry, like in an actual attempt to understand how these chemical properties interact with each other. Yeah. And other, but but that is kind of muddled in together with a bunch of essentially hooey. Mm-hmm. Uh, some actual like you know th- there were some interesting. Uh, discoveries that came out of alchemy, but you didn't have scientific rigor there to guide it. Right. And remember, Conrad Dippel, who may or may not have influenced the story, was an alchemist and claimed that he had found the elixir of life. Now, the elixir of life is also known in alchemaic circles as the philosopher's stone. Yeah, the philosopher's stone was uh, was certainly uh, one of the main al- alchemical um, uh Goals, if yeah. you will. Uh, but there were a couple other things that were you know, interesting as well. Uh, of course, there's, there's always the attempt to turn things into gold. Right. Um, right. For instance, there was a 17th century alchemist, uh, Hennig Brandt, uh, distilled countless buckets of urine in an attempt to turn urine into gold. And, uh, uh if, if you, only we could do that. If, if only, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Sp- if I could only spin urine into gold. <laughs> <laughs> His experiment failed, yeah. uh, which would come to, to no, as no surprise to anyone. Uh, but it did allow him to discover the uh, element phosphorus. Uh-huh. So, so you can see here in how, even though it was unguided and and, uh, and uncertain and muddled with all these other uh, disciplines, they still occasionally accidentally achieve something now yeah. and again. Yeah, it's the history of science. Yeah. Now, uh, the fictional Frankenstein's work closely resembles uh, alchemical attempts to produce uh, a minuscule artificial humanoid known as a homunculus. Uh, and and uh, I've looked into this some in, in the past. I, I, I'm always fascinated by the homunculus. Do you have a monster science episode about homunculi? I don't. No, oh, no. okay. Uh, I just I've done a few posts here and there about it. There's a there's a medieval text known as uh, the the Liber Vacay or the the Book of the Cow. Okay. And it uh, it lays out the homunculus creation formula in bizarre detail. So the the process begins by mixing human semen with a mystical phosphorescent elixir okay. and ends with a newborn homunculus emerging from a cow, growing human skin and craving its mother's blood inside of a large glass or lead vessel. That sounds totally legit to me. Yeah. I mean, any time I've mixed human semen with with phosphorescent elixir, something close to this happens. I think I've been missing the cow ingredient. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 at heart here, so while lost amid false concepts of spontaneous generation and magical tomfoolery, alchemists were were pondering the possibility of creating an artificial, rational animal, as as they sometimes referred to it, through learned manipulation of organic tissue. 
And, and at the time, it was widely believed that humans could mimic and manipulate such natural reproductive processes. Uh, but biological science was still incubating, and humanity's first breakthroughs uh, came in the form of machines, uh, not uh, flesh. And it's worth uh, noting here, too, that the novel states that Victor specifically studied books by Albertus Magnus, Paracelsus, and Cornelius Agrippa, who were all known alchemists, and that he considered lords of his imagination. Uh, now, let's take a quick break, but when we get back, we can get into the machinery aspect of this, of bringing life about, by talking about automatons. All right, we're back. So, the automaton. Uh, slightly different deal than Frankenstein. I can't think offhand of any examples of, like, Frankenstein adaptations where they've gone for, like, a purely mechanical monster. Hmm. The one that immediately pops into my head is Frankenstein's Army. Have you seen that? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's really good. They're it's- very mechanical, but there is, like, organic tissue sewn in there, too, right? Yeah, they're kind of, like, steampunky cyborgs. Josh Clark turned me to that movie and mm-hmm. I uh, I watched it on Netflix one time. So if you've never seen it, the premise of the movie is that Victor Frankenstein it's like his grandson or somebody like that mm-hmm. is alive during World War II and the Russians he's working for the Russians I think- and he builds like this army of Frankensteins that then just destroyed Nazis and it's it's a found footage film too like somehow they're filming the entire thing during World War II it's uh, it, it's pretty great. It's been a while since yeah. I've seen it. It's more of a, a filmed haunted attraction. It's more of a yeah. haunted house yeah. than it is a movie. Uh, but it's still a lot of fun if you're in for that. Experience. The monster designs are oh yeah amazing. That's the 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 best part. Yeah. Now, as far as as Frankenstein is concerned, uh, yeah, we we don't see a purely mechanical Frankenstein, and certainly that's not what is presented in the book. But it's it's really difficult to think about. Frankenstein's uh, historical underpinnings without thinking about uh, the obsession of of, autom- of automatons. The idea that, okay, certainly people can't build something out of flesh, but we can build machines. And if we build machines that look like humans, mm-hmm. if they, if we can program them to, to, uh, or you know, make them so that they move in certain ways, then we are at least mimicking a living body. Um, they're not intelligent in any sense of the word, word but they serve as a, a forerunner to modern uh, computational robots. Now, ac- accounts of uh, automatons date back as far as the 4th century BCE when uh, when the Greek poet uh, Pindar wrote of animated statues on the streets of, of Rhodes. Uh, and you had accounts of, uh, of other individuals building self-propelled mechanical birds. Over time, uh, countless engineers and inventors applied their intellect to create uh, mechanical, pneumatic, hydraulic, and even electric mimicry of biological life. And their attempts range from Leonardo da Vinci's 15th century robotic knight, which was uh, apparently designed to walk and sit, to Jacques de Vacanson's 18th century digesting duck, <laughs> which, uh, which made the rounds. It was really more of a performance thing. It was supposedly this mechanical duck was using its motorized chewing abilities uh, to to eat, and then it's digesting, and then it has a mechanical sphincter to mimic defecation. Uh, Reportedly it, the inspiration for the turducken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a way, kind of a, a mechanical turducken. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't actually digest anything. It was just kind of a part of the trick. But it didn't include actual biomimicry mechanics. Sure, yeah. But it all reflects this this idea that, okay, 
if the the body may be mechanical in nature, and if we can build machines that replicate it, then then perhaps this is the first step in getting to the point where we can we can build a a rational animal that we can build mm-hmm. a human, we can build an animal, we can build a duck that digests. That these things are within the grasp of human achievement. Yeah, this speaks to I think just like th- this ongoing theme throughout human myth. And also in science to a certain degree, but of, you know, us creating life outside of our regular reproductive means. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, Frankenstein's about that. But you can even say, like, I don't know, data from Star Trek. The next generation is also about that. Right. Like yeah. in a way in his own way, he's a Frankenstein. You know, it, it gets down to stuff we're still struggling with today. Like it, whatever we can create that that resembles a human that resembles yeah. a human human thought that that tweaks the human design like what's the divide between all of that that uh that that biology the biomechanics and actual identity actual consciousness uh 17th century french philosopher rene descartes viewed nature as primarily mechanical mm. he avoided the the messier existential complications of this view by defining the the human soul as an independent force as as the ghost in the machine as uh, as philosopher uh, and uh, descartes critic uh, gilbert ryle would later describe it yeah descartes a uh, classic philosopher the old uh, am i a brain in a jar how yeah. do i prove that i'm not just a brain in a jar and a demon is torturing me into thinking that exists existence is real that was uh I, that was like pretty much a whole semester of college for me was yeah. trying to wrap my brain around that one yeah and like i say it's stuff we're still uh, worrying about today as we 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 creep further and further towards the the sort of artificial intelligence that potentially reflects our own consciousness so that too is a, is a major theme in in frankenstein because because the creature is like i say unlike uh some of the the more um basic uh, film adaptations. Yeah. He, he is a rational creature. He has the, he has emotions. You feel a lot of sympathy for him in the book. Really more, in my reading anyway, you feel more sympathy for the creature than you do for Victor, who, oh, yeah, who is reckless and impulsive and, uh, and just kind of a disaster. Yeah. Uh, and, and what is the creature but a result of his disastrous choices? Yeah. And this brings us around to the alternate title of the book, which is the modern Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in many ways, Victor is that modern Prometheus. And as we were talking about earlier, there's a million different ways that you can try to dissect that and figure out what the themes are going on there. I think the term modern Prometheus was coined by Immanuel Kant. And in reference, it, it was referencing Benjamin Franklin's experiments with electricity. So let's take this apart for just a second here. Prometheus in the Greek iteration stole fire from the gods, right? right? But then there's a Latin iteration as well uh, of Prometheus, and he was basically bringing men to life, I think, from clay by using particles of, quote, heavenly fire. So mm-hmm. also electricity, maybe. Um, so there's there's a lot going on in there. Was Mary Shelley purposely connecting it to both of those and how did she envision this, the, the uh, I guess, symbology of Prometheus as as relevant to her context, right? The time that she lived in when people were experimenting with electricity, trying to discern what the meaning was between life and death and whether you could use electricity to revive a dead body. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Promethean figures are, are fascinating in, in various mythologies, be it actual Prometheus or some other iteration of mm-hmm. where you have a character, uh, an individual, a demigod even. Sometimes it's just kind of a semi-human hero 
who takes something from the gods and gives it to humans. Generally, yeah. it's like a technology or an ability. There, there are Chinese myths where it's, uh, it's more agricultural in nature. And so, like, what does that, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that humans here, have they, have they stepped out of beyond their boundaries? Right. Are they doing, are they, they dabbling in God's domain? Or is it simply like, hey, they have mastered something. Here is something that previously was the domain of, 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 of forces beyond uh, their imagination, but now it is within the human experience. Yeah. Uh, obviously makes me think of the recent movie Prometheus mm-hmm. set within the alien mythology and the beginning of that, where these, uh, what are they? These statuesque engineer aliens come to earth and give life to earth basically by, yeah, I mean, there's like the first five minutes of the film, like one yeah. of them just dissolves, right? And like his cellular, uh, parts become the nature of life. Well, right. yeah, when they're presented as titans, yeah. and Prometheus was a titan. So it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's really, yeah, the, the metaphor is strong in that one. Yeah. So this brings us to the real nuts and bolts science behind Frankenstein. And that all starts with bioelectricity. So I want to do just a real, Basic encyclopedia, uh, breakdown of what we mean by bioelectricity here. We're referring to the electric potentials and currents that are produced by or occurring within living organisms. So this is not necessarily Frankenstein's monster, but the experiments of people like Luigi Galvani and Alessandro Volta in the 18th century influenced this field of study. And we're going to talk about them much more in the next couple of minutes. Generally, they were looking for a connection between electricity and the muscle contractions in frogs and other animals. And it led to modern developments where we can now measure bioelectric effects in clinical medicine, right? You know, we can measure, uh, where, how electricity emanates from our hearts and our brains, et cetera. It's part of our modern medicine. The difference is that bioelectricity currents consist of a flow of ions, whereas the kind of electrical current that we use for power uh, is more of a movement of electrons. Bioelectric pulses accompany all muscular contraction and in nerve and muscle cells, basically what happens, there's a chemical or electrochemical stimulation that changes the cell membrane so they discharge a current along those fibers and activate the contractile mechanism, so the contraction of these muscles. Now, Professor Sharon Rustin has written quite a bit about uh, the science behind the, the context of the time that Mary Shelley was living in that influenced this. And I want to talk about a couple of these. There's uh, three or four. Uh, the first is that at the time of the novel's writing, drowning and resuscitation from drowning were a very big thing. As she tells it, despite the fact that a lot of people worked along the Thames in London, they couldn't necessarily swim. Uh, and so there was this group that was started called the Royal Humane Society in London. It was established in 1774, but its first name was the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned. Huh. <laughs> uh, and its whole aim was to publish information on how to resuscitate others and save lives. Saving people from drowning was such a big deal that they used to have an annual procession in London of all of the people that were, quote, raised from the dead by these methods. OK, huh. one of these people was Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. 
who had tried to kill herself by jumping off of Putney Bridge into the Thames. And afterward, she complained that she was inhumanely brought back to life in misery. And as a consequence of these resurrections, there was a growing fear that wasn't just drowning, like maybe you could appear dead and then you'd, oh, you'd be alive. So what if I get buried alive? This is where people really start freaking about the idea of being buried alive. Huh. Yeah, this is interesting to think about because if if you think back to a time where we're falling in the water, not being able to swim, essentially drowning, that's just a complete death sentence. Yeah. And then you see an uptick in the survivability of these experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah it could uh, we view it today as just a, a basic reality that individuals can be resuscitated. But but when the idea is fresh, it takes on these kind of supernatural aspects. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it, it, I mean, here's the thing is that doctors at the time, in fact, one of them was Shelley's doctor. His name was James Curry, wrote a book where he argued that the only way to be sure that someone was dead was if putrefaction began. Other states like mm-hmm. fainting or being in a coma or even being asleep were sort of considered to be like death. And we see this reflected in the book, Frankenstein, in the way that she uses language to describe, like, when Elizabeth faints or when Victor collapses, they talk about it as if, like, they were momentarily dead and then came back. So there's a very different understanding of the difference between life and death at that time. Now we get into... Galvani, Volta, and Aldini. These are the Italian electrocutioners, as I like to call them. These guys played with electricity. My understanding is you guys talked about the, uh, you and Joe talked about them in a previous episode that was all about sort of the zany religious antics around, uh, electricity. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'll be sure to include a link to, uh, to that episode, to those episodes in the, uh, on the landing page for this episode. So in the 1831 preface to the book, Shelley mentions that modern scientific discussions in galvanism influenced her story. And what she was referring to was the work of Italian physician Luigi Galvani. Uh, And this guy basically found that a dead frog's legs would twitch as if they were alive when they are struck with a spark of electricity. He figured this out in 1781 while he was dissecting a frog nearby a static electricity machine. Uh, His assistant accidentally touched a scalpel to a nerve in the frog's leg. The, the leg moved, and Galvani immediately changed all of his research into something he called animal electricity. Tried to re- replicate this experiment over and over again. His contemporary, Alessandro Volta, was one of the earliest readers of these papers, and he had already earned a reputation as discovering electric potential and charge, as well as being the first person to isolate methane gas. So Volta reproduced Galvani's experiments. But he had a totally different conclusion. He thought the electricity actually came from the metals in the, in the room, the dissimilar metals, and that the frog itself was just simply a conductor for those. Galvani, in the meantime, believed that electricity resided in the frog itself and thought the two dissimilar metals were merely conducting electricity from one part of the frog to another. He thought electrical energy was actually intrinsic to biological matter. And they developed this bitter feud over it and academics from, you know, around all just took sides and it became like an issue. It was like a modern debate. Um, they were both kind of right. 
in their own ways. They're also both kind of wrong in their own ways. Yeah, I mean, it was a time when we were we were still trying to figure out what electricity was and how it worked, and then yeah. certainly how it uh, it it was involved in the uh, in, in the processes of the human body and the movement of muscles, etc. And and electricity kind of had this holy aura at the time. It was totally. this, this mystery of it was there was something divine in it. And this is even before, like, we get into, uh, Edison and Tesla and mm-hmm. their electricity wars and all that. In 1799, Volta invented the voltaic pile. Uh, this was basically a stack of discs of two different metals that were separated by brine soaked paper. This was the world's first battery. He invented it. And we know his stack worked today because dissimilar metals transfer electrons in an oxidation reduction reaction. We also know that the reason why the frog legs moved is because of what I was talking about earlier. Electricity plays a role in muscular contraction. So again, they're both right, they're both wrong. Galvani actually responded to Volta's skepticism though, and he's just he just keeps conducting more sets on various animals and their exposed nerves. And he keeps recreating muscle contractions without those dissimilar metals present. Uh, and he absolutely believed nerves were insulated with non-conductive coating, which we now call myelin, and that electrical impulses traveled through them to muscle cells. Now, there's another article that I read by a guy named Richard Shaw, uh, and it's called Volta's Battery, Animal Electricity, and Frankenstein. All this stuff is connected. Uh, Shaw argues that Volta's invention was significant to the novel, as was Galvani, and the existence of the idea of animal electricity. Uh, he argues that Shelley's book is actually a challenge of Volta's research, trying to distinguish life in the mere appearance of life. So, uh, it, it puts her in the book right in the middle of this big debate that was going on. And this is a quote from his paper. He says, Shelley understands animal electricity not as life, but as a token for life, and thereby arrests the tendency of the vitalists to make it an object and to mistake it for life itself. So this brings up a question. We we talked about this earlier. It's very unclear in the book what science is actually being used to right. create Frankenstein's monster. Because it's the dark monster. secret that he dare not share with it, the world. It, yeah. And it seems to come out of, uh, as I recall, like he's just he's working himself, overclocking himself to the point of just near, just I mean, actually complete physical exhaustion. Yeah. So yeah. he he alone has the the brilliance, madness, and determination to grasp the secret, and he's not about to share it with the rest of us because it's horrible. Well, we might be able to unpack this a little bit. Maybe the secret was the voltaic battery, uh, at least in terms of what Shelley knew about at the time. Yeah. Now here's where things get even weirder. And this also happened before Shelley wrote the book. Galvani had a nephew, and his name was Giovanni Aldini. And he went a step further, and he tried to reanimate hanged criminals with electricity. <laughs> in 1803, at Newgate Prison in London, he did this with the, some success on a guy named George Forster, who was found guilty of murdering his wife and child. Now, a whole crowd was there, and they all reported that they saw Forster's eye open, his right hand raise up and clench and his leg move. And, by the way, Aldini used Volta's pile in his electrocution experiment. Now, obviously, he didn't bring the individual back to life so no. much as he just made him dance around a little bit. Exactly. Quickly. But it would have been interesting. What What if he had? What if he's been able to Well, that him? would have been, yeah. Did, does he have to, does he get another death sentence or is that sentence served? 
That's a good point. Yeah. A strange scenario. man. Yeah. The ethics, so many ethical <laughs> quandaries. In fact, we're going to get into that at the end of this episode. There's a, a fun bit of ethics played with the science here. Uh, and, but let me just finish with some more scientific uh, stuff here that, that Mary Shelley was clearly aware of. Another was Humphrey Davy's book, The Elements of Chemical Philosophy. Now, Humphrey Davy and William Nicholson were the era's leading electrical researchers, and they were friends of her father. So she probably knew all about them as well as this history of electrical experiments with corpses, whether they be human or animals. Uh, Davy used Volta's battery for what is now called electrolysis and isolated a series of substances for the first time. He basically invented electrochemistry. He went on to invent the Davy lamp, too, which separated flame from gas so that there was safer usage of, like, lanterns in mines that were filled with methane gas. And he published this book, Elements of Chemical Philosophy, in 1812 as an account of the field within which he worked. So it's very much thought that this is a book that influenced Shelley. She was aware of it. He was a friend of the family uh, and clearly brought it into her work on Frankenstein. Now, one last little tie in here. There was a big focus on life and the body at the time as well. And another debate was going on between two surgeons this time, John Abernathy and William Lawrence. And they were arguing about the nature of life. Now, here's the thing. William Lawrence had been the Shelley's doctor previously. I mean, think about all those medical misfortunes we talked about earlier. She must have visited a lot of doctors. So he was seen as a radical because he argued that life was simply the working operation of a body's functions. And he didn't take the soul into account. People got really upset about this. So subsequently, he was forced to withdraw his book about this topic from publication, and he had to actually resign from the hospital he worked at because he didn't have a scientific principle for the soul. Now, Abernathy, on the other hand, argued that life didn't depend on the body's structure and that our bodies were just these material substances that life was attached to as what he called, quote, a vital principle. Now, this goes right back to what we were talking about earlier with alchemy and the biomechanical soul and especially golems. I mean, essentially what Abernathy is saying is like, oh, we're just old golems that are filled with souls. (laughs) You know, one one thing about all these uh, historical um, dissections, I guess you'd say, of uh, of of Frankenstein and the and the the the, the individuals and the works that in, that may have inspired Frankenstein, is that sometimes when when you start absorbing a lot of it, it begins to feel like an attempt to ground a a, a female author's success in the works of male uh, scientists and male writers and male professionals, etc. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's important to, to note that no matter what her influences were, no matter what work she was, she was, she was drawing off of the way she assembled it all uh, is, is brilliant. The way she assembled yeah. it all is, is just ab- above reproach. So no. we don't, we don't want that to, to bleed away in the di- dissection. Not at all. None of these guys that I just mentioned could have created a work as imaginative and insightful as Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's be honest here. Neither did uh, her husband or Lord Byron or Polidori on yeah. that fateful summer. She was the only one who wrote, you know, who finished a novel. Mm-hmm. Polidori had that vampire story. That's fine. But <laughs> I mean, she <laughs> created this, uh, uh, long lasting 
200-year epic that we're still looking back on today. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, let's talk about that, where we are now 200 years later and what Frankenstein's influence is on all of us. All right, we're back. So, yeah, Frankenstein continues to cast this long shadow not only over our, our culture but also over our perception of science. Um, you'll still... If you go into something like Eureka Alerts or or any of the various science journalism websites, if you do a search for Frankenstein, you're gonna you're gonna find some some articles that are directly related to Frankenstein in some way or another. But you're also just gonna find Frankenstein used repeatedly oh boy. as an adjective, yep. as a, as even a slur. Um, Tell me about it. Yesterday, trying to do research for this episode, man, like. I really had to make use of all of the filters <laughs> in uh, our library search engine to try to really hone down what I was looking for because yeah the just the term Frankenstein is used now as a verb mm-hmm. right like to Frankenstein something I use it like that of course but like there are scientific articles that throw it around pretty pretty uh easily mm-hmm. to draw attention yeah and you know, as as much as we say we can discount and say, all right, you're you're overusing using this term, yeah. using it poorly, etc. It has still become a part of the way that we view science. I mean, that's how influential yeah. this was as a work of science fiction. Um, you know, I I think Frankenstein, man, it's a real quintessential work, obviously, but it it really speaks to what we do here on the show. I think, like our mission here with stuff to blow your mind, Frankenstein is sort of this perfect text. That yeah. we, we can attach what we do with and that like it is about science, but it's also about the larger world and the human experience. Uh, it's just, man, revisiting it this last year, I've just really fallen in love with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it, it is. It's, it's a wonderful text and it has a little bit of every, everything that we love here on the show is yeah. present in the book. Yeah. But of course, one of the things with science fiction, first of all. It's a brilliant example because she was vague in exactly how Victor yeah. is bringing uh, life to this thing. Uh, and if you're vague enough, then nobody's going to come along 10 years later and say, oh, you got it wrong. Because he never, he never actually shares the secret with the reader. Totally. Book, right. So, so there's that. But then also we obviously have not reached the point in time where human achievement has equaled the fictional, uh, achievement in the book, the creation of life. Right. But we have made a number of advances that uh, continue to push the boundaries and, 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 and certainly give life to this, this shadow of Frankenstein that's hanging over things. I mean, advances in synthetic biology and other fields, uh, in 1952, we unlocked the mysteries of DNA and subsequent breakthroughs in genetics have empowered the, in the science of cloning. In 2010, researchers created synthetic bacterium in the lab, uh, the first one to be controlled entirely by man-made genetic instructions. Elsewhere, robotics continue to develop, uh, increasingly complex, increasingly autonomous artificial intelligence and biological inspired mechanical forms mm-hmm. and through all of this uh yeah frankenstein's monster continues to resonate as a powerful model of unchecked scientific advancement as well as a yeah. reminder of the murky philosophical and ethical quagmires we wish to avoid so as, as kind of a modern myth uh frankenstein taps into that fear that that like victor will lack the wisdom or responsibility to control our scientific creations 
and uh, and the, the monster em- embodies such modern fears as a lab-created black hole or man-made plagues, nuclear annihilation. And the story also poses the possibility that, like the monster himself, science will deliver us to a place where we find the integrity of the human body violated and the nature of the human soul scourged. And these are themes, all of these are themes that we have talked about in the last year on yeah. the show. Like, whether we're talking about bioengineering or body hacking or biosynthesis or, you know, uh, you and Joe did the electricity episode. Like we're circling around this stuff unintentionally. It, we're all in Frankenstein's orbit. Yeah. I mean, as we, uh, as we discussed um, uh, on some biotechnology episodes in the summer, we see gl- great examples of the, the science clearly outpacing our ability to really drive home what our rules and regulations and expectations should be. Yeah. And, I mean, what's more Frankenstein than that? The, Absolutely. The, the advances are, are beyond what we were prepared for. So this leads us to my favorite article that I found in the whole pile of stuff <laughs> uh, about Frankenstein. This is one of the most fun papers I've ever read. It reminds me of that one that we did when we did an episode on vampire blood drinking. Uh-huh. Uh, the one about like how what the rate of infection would be if vampires were real. This is called Victor Frankenstein's Institutional Review Board Proposal, and it's written by G. Harrison and W. Gannon. It came out uh, last year in 2015. It's a very fun idea for an article. The idea is what would it be like if Victor Frankenstein had to submit his research to an institutional review board the way all scientists have to today? So um, they basically took... Uh, the IRB proposal and they set it in 1790 at Ingolstadt, which is where he went to school, uh, in the book, uh, where Frankenstein was a student. And in his proposal, they made him consider comparative anatomy, medical experimentation, and theories of life related to the debates around animal electricity. Now, because the theme of the novel is that he didn't consider the ethical consequences of his work and therefore suffered tragedy, they think that the IRB shows that it would have compelled him to consider the consequences of this experiment. <laughs> I like this. I'd never heard of this. So it, this is a totally new one. For, for uh, it's so much fun. 2015, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was published in Science and Engineering Ethics. Um, they note that in the novel, Victor, talked, as I mentioned earlier, he talks about the, all these alchemists that he studied. Uh, but they say, in addition, you know, they basically create what you do for an IRB, a, a literary review, uh, and they add a long list of authors prevalent before that time in natural history who would have influenced the debates about reproduction, regeneration, anatomy, body functions, in the interplay between electrochemical and pneumatic forces in living systems. Galvani, Volta, and Davy are all among these. They also remind us that the electrical machines are from the movie. Again, that's Nikola Tesla's inspiration. They're not in the book. They also say, the, and this is maybe for all of you out there too, if you're unfamiliar, if you haven't been in an academic setting, the purpose of an IRB is to protect those involved in research using uh, anything that's impacting to living human beings. So the present IRB structure was inspired by something called the Belmont Report, which drew its inquiries uh, from both the Nuremberg trials and the Tuskegee syphilis study. And we're going to talk about IRBs again in our other episode this week about creepypastas. But I'll keep it grounded here for now. These led to three broad principles for the Belmont Report. The first is to respect people's autonomy. The second is to do no harm to the people involved in the study. And the third is justice or basically 
a fair sharing of the benefits of the research. Today's IRB is essentially a group of people at each institution who must have at least five members and conduct an initial and continuing review of these research projects. Uh, I, you know, in my time as a graduate student and working at the um, Georgia State University here in Atlanta, uh, submitted many proposals to the IRB. Uh, everything from my thesis about Captain America had to go to them to... um uh, when I worked at the library at Georgia State University, if we wanted to interact with students and do some studies on like how they were using library materials, we had to submit it to the IRB. So they they look at pretty much everything and, and they make you uh, take refresher courses on the Belmont uh, report over and over again so that you're really up to date on this stuff. The principles of the IRB, the big argument of this this fun paper is that the principles of the IRB are all essentially what the monster is appealing to Victor for throughout this entire novel. Uh, one is his acknowledgement and respect as an autonomous human being. Two, the promotion of his welfare and to protect him from harm. And three, to just treat him with some justice and equity. So from this and the book's accounting, they argue that Victor always intended to create life from lifeless matter, which could constitute as impacting living human beings. And they outline a proposal. It's real. I'm going to very briefly cover it. It's like a 20 page paper, but uh, he, they cover the basic building blocks of life, including the protocols for how he's going to catalog and carefully store all of his body parts. Uh, the reconstitution of simpler organisms, uh, basically how he's going to reverse the process of death in all the various systems of a body, and then how he applies biotechnology to the creation of a human being. And they speculate the way that he would pitch this is by generating electrical charges in a series of Leyden jars and supplementing them with a jolt of electricity from a bolt of lightning. All of this would convulse this organism's systems back into life. Their conclusion is that if Victor Frankenstein had just completed an IRB proposal, he would have had to consider the consequences of his experiment and acknowledge his responsibilities to his creature. And it would have given him the chance to think through what he was doing ethically. (laughs) I love it. My favorite quote from this paper is him saying, this is them writing in his voice. If I animate a human creature, I will assess risks for the being as well as for the surrounding community with whom the creature might interact. And another one is, should I succeed in creating a rational being, I will ensure its privacy and try to ensure that it does not become a spectacle or a monster for the amusement of others. <laughs> uh, it's, this is like one of the most fun papers I've ever read. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I want them to do a sequel to this uh, where they, they write a proposal for Herbert West reanimator. I think that that would be an, <laughs> another worthy cause. Oh, yeah. Just about any mad scientist would work because, I mean, that's what yeah. I love about looking at a, a, a mad scientist character is asking, like, what like what were your goals here? What were you really trying to do? Yeah. What was, how, how does this possibly fit into any kind of uh, actual um, you know, scientific rigor? So circling back to the 200-year-old thing, I, I just want to uh, lead us out here with two of, I think that we could easily say this, the leading minds in horror literature that are alive today. The first is S.T. Jochi, who I mentioned at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a book that I have mentioned on this show many times that is a survey of all of horror literature called Unutterable Horror. Uh, and his section on Frankenstein in it, 
He says it is a richly complex tale that fully justifies the mountains of commentary it has inspired. So we mentioned that earlier. All of this swirling conversation about themes and intentions and, and influences and everything. He says it's all justified because this book is great. Um, the, he also says the passages that are about science show that Shelley is departing from the Gothic tradition's reliance on medieval superstition as the source for terror. And that's the like real important point of this book is it's like a, a huge transition turning point in the world of horror literature. He also argues that what gives the book merit is the creature's moral complexity. We talked about it earlier, both the creature and Victor Frankenstein are so morally complex Joshi says, it may be the sole genuine contribution of gothic fiction to the great literature of the world. And its themes are eternal, and Shelley, to her credit, doesn't provide simple solutions to them. So it constantly makes us keep thinking. That's why we keep turning back to it for 200 years. Yeah. And then Uncle Stevie, Stephen King... (laughs) From his book, Dance Macabre, back in, uh, I think that came out in like 82, maybe 81. Yeah, I, this one I've never read, I, but I, oh, I, I always remembered it. seeing it on the, uh, on, on the King racks when I would, I would, I would skip lunch for a week. Yeah. Uh, in school to save up my lunch money to spend on Stephen King paperbacks. Uh-huh. And, and I always, I would consider that one and I'm like, oh, it's not, it's not a tale. This is nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend it on, uh, you know, uh, Eyes different, of the, cycle uh, of the werewolf. Cycle, uh, no, I never get cycle. Of the werewolf was always a little bit more expensive. Oh so yeah, I because never it was read like a it. prestige book. Yeah, yeah, it was like that was like seven ninety five. Yeah, your cheapest was the Dead Zone at like four ninety nine. Yep. So that was the first one I read out of cheapness. And then you have to work like some of the bigger ones. Though you're talking thousand plus page books. That's like oh, two yeah. weeks of lunch money. That's true. Maybe three. See, I always just hid in the library from bullies and read all of my Stephen King books in there during lunch. Yeah. <laughs> but um Dance Macabre, if you haven't read it, is King's attempt to sort of uh, gather all of the thoughts about the horror genre together in one book. Now, keep in mind, he wrote this in like the late 70s, early 80s. So there's a lot that has happened since then. But I, I love it. I think you'd really like it, Robert. I, I keep going back to it. But in the book, he outlines basically his argument is that there are three major archetypes of horror that we keep coming back to. And Frankenstein's monster is one of them. He calls it the thing without a name, which is important because Victor never names the monster. That's why we have this problem. There's no name for it. There is that like sort of I think there's a passage in it or maybe it's something Shelley said outside of the book of like referring to it as Adam, like his Adam. Mm-hmm. Some people call the monster Adam. Well, I maybe think- he was just trying to, you know, retain scientific objectivity. He knew that if he named it, <laughs> he'd have that, to copyright things it. Things get messy and complicated. <laughs> um, so uh, King says that there are many examples of Frankenstein's inheritors. So everything from the Hulk, uh, the Marvel oh, yeah, superhero, the Hulk, that. is a version of that, to the thing from another world that came out in 1951. Now, remember, King wrote this like, Two years before John Carpenter's version of the thing came out. Uh, so he, he would have surely included that as uh, the thing without a name. In fact, uh, uh, just last night, Joe McCormick and I went and saw the thing here in Atlanta at our Plaza Theater. It's the first time I saw it on the big screen and it was a wonderful experience. But yeah, I think it would qualify as this thing without a name. So when you're thinking of the types of horror that you watch, that's probably one of them. Uh, King also says... 
this book has probably been the subject of more films than any other literary work in history, including the Bible. And I find it hard to argue with that. I mean, I haven't counted them, but man, there's a lot. I mean, it was one of the earliest. You saw um, Edison's uh, short Frankenstein film. And uh, and then yeah, if you go to IMDb and you put in Frankenstein or Victor Frankenstein, it's just yeah, you know, hundreds it seems, uh, different uh, iterations of that, those characters. So I just want to end on this. He argues that it uses one of horror's most common themes: that there are things that mankind was not meant to know. And this brings us right back around again to the mission of stuff to blow your mind and why Frankenstein is so important to it. This, this idea of science and wonder and oddity and how much can we know and how far should we prod? Yeah. I think, I think the, the answer, my view on it is that we should, we should not be afraid to prod and to move forward, but we should use, if we're going to turn to Frankenstein, we use it as a cautionary tale to say, Hey, keep pushing. But know that you are going to discover things that you might not be prepared for as an individual, yeah. as a culture, as a legal system, and uh, and therefore you have to remain ever vigilant and uh, and ever ready to adapt your mindset, even your worldview, to the uh, the new revel- revelations to come. All right. Well, on that note, we're gonna go ahead and close out this uh, this chapter of uh, Frankenstein until we inevitably do another Frankenstein episode with perhaps some new angle uh, uh, in the years ahead. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, we'll be here to do the 400th anniversary of Frankenstein. <laughs> we'll use uh, biotechnology to keep ourselves alive for 200 more years, so we can talk about it again then. All right. So this is one of our uh, Halloween episodes. Uh, obviously, we are in the Halloween season, and it's tough to blow your mind. We're probably going to stretch that Halloween season as far through the remainder of 2016 <laughs> as possible, yeah. hopefully pushing Christmas and the holidays uh, into uh, January or, or a pit somewhere. Uh, so, hey, if you're listening to this during Halloween, uh, be aware that uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, monster video series, Monster Science, is back with a fourth season or series of episodes we have six of them uh and uh, as you're listening to this there should be two or three episodes already out the first three are sex education oriented with takes on sexy vampires alien husbands and uh and face huggers from the alien films yes and then the we've the, got a lovely face hugger here hanging <laughs> in the office from the ceiling now it's pretty good yeah, yeah. And then the the, uh, the back half of the series are going to deal with uh, dragons, Godzilla, and, of course, the threat of pod people. So Robert would never say this, but I'm going to say it. Monster Science is my absolute favorite thing that How Stuff Works produces. I love it. <laughs> I'm an unabashed fan of this series, even if I wasn't involved in Stuff to Blow Your Mind and didn't work here. It is, the, in my opinion, the best thing that we put out here. I definitely recommend that you watch it. They're funny, they're informative, they're fun, and they revolve around the lovely October horror themes that we like to play around with here on the show. I've seen two of these episodes. Joe and I are in yeah, a couple yeah. of them. Uh, they're, they're great. Uh, and our producer, Tyler, man, he really goes out of his way. He oh, just yeah. makes great special effects. Uh, it's so much fun. So cool. well, check them out. And on that note, I'd like to throw out to a project of my own, which is I do another podcast outside of here called Super Context. And uh, this episode was a very scientific look at Frankenstein. But Super Context is a show that's a autopsy of various forms of media. Uh, we do movies, television, music. We look at comics sometimes and we talk about literature as well. So if you want a show that's more along those lines, but sort of 
plays in the same research-heavy orientation that we do here, please check it out. It's called Super Context, uh, and you can find us on Twitter and Tumblr. All right, and as far as Stuff to Blow Your Mind goes, as always, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find the new Monster Science episodes. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts as well. Yeah, we are on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook. We're all over those. Follow us there to find out more about these videos, to see what new episodes are coming up, or just what kind of weird, bizarre science we come across in our journeys. And if you want to write us the old-fashioned way, you can send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.